one of the reasons I love this church, I'm, I'm not joking, but I'm kind of joking, is that we turn the lights on here. A lot of churches, this is how it is every Sunday. You know what the problem with it is? I can't see you. I've got a spotlight in my face and it's dark. And I love that week in and week out, I can speak to you from God's Word and look you in the eye. So on days like today, I'm grateful for those other days. But I will try to communicate as effectively as I can what God has to say to us this morning from His Word. We just prayed for our missions partners, and I am so thankful for them and the work that they do both locally and globally. One reason I'm thankful for them is I am very aware of the price that they pay to do the work that they do. They make many sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, but I am sure that they know that the gain of gospel ministry from an eternal perspective is greater than that which they lose. Our global missions partners pay an especially heavy price. And that is the price of leaving their friends and their family members behind. Some are gone for years at a time. And even as they come back home, they come back home knowing that they will eventually return again. I can't imagine the emotions that they experience. The sorrow and the grief that comes from prolonged separation. But again, I know they have counted the cost. And that while leaving is sorrowful, it is ultimately beneficial for the things that matter to God. In Jesus' farewell discourse, which we've been covering over the last number of weeks, he prepares his disciples for his imminent departure. He knows his announcement has left his disciples sorrowful, and he wants them to know, though, that it will be beneficial. And what he has done is he has made all of the preparations that are needed for him to go away. When you go on a long trip, there is a lot of preparation that needs to be made. We're leaving for California, actually, this afternoon. As soon as I'm finished preaching in second service, we will get in the car and go. But before today, we have had to make sure that everything is tied up here at home before we leave. So we found people to watch our house, to feed our dogs, to water our plants, to bring in our mail. You know the drill if you've gone away for a period of time. That's what Jesus is doing in the farewell discourse. He is leaving them, but he has planned for every contingency. And he is letting them know that. And that everything that he has put in place is for their benefit. Let's just review some of the benefits that Jesus has already laid out for his disciples. His going away means that they will experience a new relationship with God like they've never known before. Remember what we learned? 
the Father and the Son will dwell in believers through the Spirit. God will abide with us. And we abide in the triune God. We abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, Jesus makes a promise that we will bear fruit. And part of that fruit means other people will come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Sure, there will be opposition from the world. But Jesus has made provision for that as well. He has sent the Holy Spirit. And as we bear witness to Christ, the Holy Spirit will work in the lives of unbelievers to save them. Sure, there are many reasons to grieve, but even greater reasons to rejoice. Jesus has planned for almost every contingency. But as we come to his final words today, in the back part of John 16, he has one more thing that he needs to deal with. He needs to deal with their sorrow. He knows that they will be initially sorrowful when he goes to the cross. But he tells them that their sorrow will be transformed into joy. And our passage gives us three reasons to rejoice while Jesus is away. I have called them three cheers for the cross. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John 16, verses 16 to 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going 
to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Could we bring this spot down just a little bit? That's great. Thank you. That helps. Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away, and this leaves them confused. He's going away in a little while, and they won't see him, but then in a little while, they will see him. They don't know what this means. And Jesus knows that they're confused. But I find this very interesting. Instead of dealing with their lack of understanding, instead of giving them answers to their questions, he deals with what lies underneath their questions. Instead of addressing himself to their head, he cuts to the heart. He deals with their sorrow. Look at verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I think this is the theme verse of this entire passage and what I have based my sermon in a sentence on. The cross turns our sorrow into joy. Why will the disciples be sorrowful? It is because Jesus is going to the cross in just a while. But he says that the very event, the cross, that will cause their sorrow will become the same event that leads them to rejoice. Because when they see him after he is raised from the dead, they will get it, and the result will be great joy. And that is exactly what happened. As you turn over to the resurrection account in chapter 20, we see that in chapter 20, verse 20, after he was raised from the dead, he showed his disciples his hands and his side, and we are told that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He predicted that they would be sorrowful but then they would rejoice, and that's what happened. We see something similar in Matthew 28, after the women saw the risen Lord. We are told that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Their sorrow gave way to joy, to great joy. Literally, in the Greek, it gave way to mega joy. The same event that led to sorrow, the cross, now becomes the cause of their great joy. 
And to make his point plain, he gives an illustration in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, you may think that's easy for a man to say something like this. But Elizabeth, you have to remember it was Jesus who was saying this. You may be thinking, mothers don't forget the pain of childbirth. And that is right. But that's not quite what Jesus is saying. He isn't saying that mothers won't remember in their head how difficult childbearing is. What he is saying is that the joy in their heart will replace the sorrow. The joy in their heart will replace the sorrow. The same event, let me say it one more time, that caused pain, giving birth, becomes the very event that causes them great joy. And Jesus says that's what it will be like for his disciples when he is raised from the dead, and that is what it will be like for all of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ. All that God has accomplished through the cross will become clear after the resurrection, and that will give way to joy. And as verse 22 says, when that happens, no one will take your joy from you. Now, that doesn't mean that there will never be a reason to be sorrowful. You must not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. In fact, until Jesus returns, there will be many difficulties in this life. You will weep, and you will have reason to weep. But Jesus is simply saying that the joy that comes is a result of the death and the resurrection of himself will have lasting effects. Think about it for a moment. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And he meant it. He accomplished atonement for our sins. And that reality becomes the reality that colors the way that we think of all else in this world. It gives us a joy that will last. In the resurrection, Jesus gave a guarantee of our resurrection and an anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be new. That leads us to lasting joy which transcends the sorrows in this world. What Christ accomplished at the cross is bigger, do you believe it, than the pain we experience in this life. And it points to eternal life where there will be no more pain. That's why we can have a lasting joy. That's why Paul can write to churches that are experiencing much reason for grief and say, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. That's why he can say, grieve, but do not grieve as those who have no hope. There will be many reasons to be sorrowful in this life, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sorrows are turned to joy.
That's the fundamental point of this passage, the fundamental point of my message. But, like I said, there will be reasons to be sorrowful. There will be things that throw us off kilter. So how do we maintain a sense of joy in the midst of difficulties? How do we cultivate joy in our lives? In the rest of my sermon, I want to lay out three ways to maintain joy in this world. Three reasons we can have joy. And I'm calling them three cheers for the cross. Here's the first reason. Through the cross, you have access to the Father in prayer. Just contemplate for a moment that in our sins, apart from Christ, we are separated from God. We have no access to God. But now, through the blood of Jesus, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And not only can we pray to the Father. In verse 23, Jesus says that the Father will answer our prayers. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. And that answered prayer will lead to a fuller joy. Look at verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So how do you cultivate joy? Part of it has to do with prayer. But what does Jesus mean when He says that we can ask whatever we want in His name? And how does that lead to greater joy in our lives? In order to answer these questions, I'm going to need to do a little bit of theological work, of tracing how these themes work in the Gospel of John. So bear with me. Throughout the farewell discourse, Jesus has made this promise that we just read here repeatedly. Whatever we ask in His name will be answered. But what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Most of us tag it at the end of all of our prayers, don't we? What does it mean? Normally, when we think of praying in Jesus' name, what we mean is that we come to the Father through the mercies of Christ, not our own merits. And that is true. We don't come in our own name. We come in His name. It is through Christ that we have access to the Father. But praying in Jesus' name means more than that. In the Old Testament, calling on the name of the Lord is a way to describe prayer. In fact, in Genesis 4, the first prayer that is recorded is, in that day, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In a sermon I gave not too long ago, I explained what that meant. What it means is that to call upon the name of the Lord is to pray according to the promises of God. Or as the Puritans like to put it, to plead the promises. Now, did you catch this? So in the Old Testament, calling upon the name of the Lord is prayer. Now Jesus says, you pray to the Father in my name. His name. Which is evidence that He is God. But it's more than that. 
It also means that we are called to pray according to the promises that Jesus has set out for us. If you look at the three times that Jesus tells his disciples in the farewell discourse to ask anything in his name, all three of them are tethered to promises that he made to his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do greater works than Jesus did. Remember what we learned that this means? It means that his disciples and the church after them would reach more people than Jesus is able to reach. That's what we're focused on during Missions Month. As they preach the gospel, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and will have life in his name. Then in the very next verse, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The promises and the prayers are right there next to one another. Jesus promises that they'll do greater works of reaching the world and then tells them to pray for that. Because prayer is a way that God will accomplish that promise. Chapter 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Then in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, the promise or the truth, apart from me, you can do nothing. And now the call to pray, presumably to pray that they would bear fruit as Jesus said they would do if they abide in him. Later in chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. As we said, this too is a reference to the mission of the church. Part of the fruit that Jesus has in mind is the fruit of new disciples who will believe as the gospel goes forth in the world. Then he says, so that... Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you see the pattern? The promise and the call to prayer are linked to one another. The promise that the mission will bear fruit is connected to prayer for that very fruit. So praying in Jesus' name, at a minimum, is praying that the promises he made to the church will be accomplished. And we can have confidence that God will answer prayers that are connected to his promises, that are in line with his will. How does that give us joy? Well, think again of the context in which Jesus is saying all of these things. Remember what we learned last week. What will happen if you bear witness for Christ in the world? Will it be a day at the park? No. You will face hostility and hatred from the world on account of Jesus. But God has chosen some out of the world. Jesus says that the Spirit will convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But not only will the Spirit convict 
people in the world of their sin. He will also convince them that Jesus is the one who came to save them from their sins. They will repent. They will believe. So while bearing witness in the world is hard, while it will cause sorrow, God will answer many of our prayers. Do you believe that? People will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And when that happens, our sorrow will be turned into joy. We will rejoice when people come to believe. I heard a story just this last week about one of our missions partners, Austin Olinger. If ever there was a man who has reasons to have sorrow, it is Austin. His dear wife, Amanda, is battling cancer that seems to be winning. I hope you'll continue to pray for her. But two weeks ago, Austin was still doing what he does, sharing the gospel with people on campus at the University of Arkansas, and one of the men that he was sharing the gospel with believed. They professed faith in Jesus Christ. What a reason to rejoice. What a reason to rejoice. We will all die one day. But what joy to know that that man will not face the judgment of God when he dies, but will enter in to the love of his great God. Are you struggling for joy? Let me encourage you to pray for what matters most of all. To pray for the lost. To pray for the mission to advance. To pray for our missions partners. To pray for God's purposes, which He has laid out in His Word. To pray them. It will get your mind off the troubles and the trials And it will tune our hearts to pay attention to what God is doing. Paul believed this. Paul believed that prayer was God's way of furthering the gospel in the world. So he says, pray for me in Ephesians. That the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Similarly in Colossians, pray for us. That God may open to us a door for the word. He says, pray for us. This is 2 Thessalonians. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened to you. That the same gospel that reached you would reach others. As we pray for the gospel to advance in the world, God will answer those prayers. And when he does, We can rejoice and we can say like John, who is, by the way, banished on an island. I rejoice greatly. In fact, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's one cheer for the cross. Let's now look at the second reason the cross can give us joy. A second way to maintain and cultivate joy in the midst of hard times. Through the cross, you know the Father loves you. 
In verse 26, Jesus says, In that day you will ask in my name. So there's that topic again. But he develops it here. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The cross not only gives us access to the Father in prayer, that's wonderful, but the cross before that changes your relationship with God the Father. If we believe in Jesus, we are no longer children of wrath, as Paul puts it. If we receive Jesus, he gives us the right to be called children of God. Amen? So that through faith in Christ, we all have a relationship with God. The question is, what is your relationship with God? Through faith in Christ, God no longer relates to you in judgment. He now relates to you in love. There is a delight in knowing that the Father hears and answers our prayers, but an even deeper delight, an even more fundamental joy, the sheer delight of knowing God of having a personal relationship with Him, and of knowing that God loves you in a world filled with so much pain. This is the anchor that we need in the storm. And speaking of pain, today is Father's Day. And Father's Day, like Mother's Day, it's a mixed bag. For many, it's a day to be thankful to God for our fathers, and for fathers to be thankful to God for their children. But for many others, it is a reminder of loss and pain. Maybe today makes you miss your father because he's no longer with you. Maybe you never knew your father, and today reminds you of all of the insecurities that are attached with that. Or maybe you had or even have currently a broken relationship with your father and today reminds you of that brokenness. I never knew my father. As a child, that caused me great anger. He hurt our family. He made decisions that permanently severed my relationship with him. And to speak honestly, none of that was my fault. It was all his fault. But when I heard the gospel, I came to see that I also had a broken relationship with my heavenly father. And I came to see that that broken relationship was my fault. It was a result of my sin. But that's where the gospel came in. My heavenly father loved me so much that he sent his son to die for my sin. To bring me into the family of God. 
This doesn't do away with the pain of loss. But let me tell you, it transformed my sorrow into joy. It took time. But it turned my sorrow into joy. The Father's love for me was greater than the lack of love I had experienced. What I had gained in Christ was greater than what I had lost. So my sorrow turned to joy. Do you have father pain today? That pain can be turned into joy. As the hymn writer says, O Father, You are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. All evil overruling as none but the conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Jesus is not promising a life free of pain and grief. He is showing us that what we have in Christ is greater than the pain and grief. That's how we get joy. Friends, there is nothing more important for you this morning. Nothing more important than to rest in the love that the Father has for you. You can't say the words enough. You can't think the thoughts enough. God loves me. And He has proven it through sending His Son. It's the fundamental truth about you if you were in Christ. Jack Miller was a Presbyterian pastor who had great influence on Tim Keller, also the man who started Surge, the missions organization that two of our missionaries uh, work with, an organization that Ruby and I had the opportunity to go and work with last year. I like the way that Jack Miller frames this whole thing. This is what he once said. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. How do you know that the Father loves us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The only way to come to know the joy that Jesus speaks of here is to dwell on the love that the Father has for you. That's the second reason to cheer up. The final and overarching reason is this. Through the cross, Jesus overcame the world. After Jesus spoke of the love of the Father, verse 28, he told his disciples that he's going to the Father. Then in verse 29, they say to him, we get it now. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Why do they say that? Well, remember at the beginning of the passage, they're talking among themselves. What does he mean? In a little while you won't see me. In a little while you will see me. 
Jesus didn't hear their conversation, but he knew what they were talking about. So now that he's answered the question that they didn't ask, they say, now we believe. Now we get it. You are from God. But Jesus knows that in a real short time, it will become very clear that they don't quite get it. They will be scattered when he is arrested. And so he says in verse 31, he asks a question, a question that all of us should be asking this morning. Do you now believe? He knows that they don't fully believe now. That will come later. But he doesn't rub it in. He knows they'll get it eventually. And so he simply leaves them with one more thing before he goes. And it's the last thing that we need to hear if we are going to have lasting joy. The fundamental thing. Verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The beginning of the farewell discourse, he tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Then for three chapters, he's told them why their hearts should not be troubled. But now he concludes with a summary of it all. I have overcome the world. They will face many trials in life, and so will you. Many things that will lead them to sorrow, but he has made preparations for it all. They will have the Holy Spirit. They'll have access to God in prayer. They'll bear fruit. The mission will make progress in the world. But all of it is based on what's getting ready to happen in just a few short hours after this speech. All of it is based on what he is going to accomplish at the cross. It's at the cross that he overcomes the world. That's the basis of everything. The reason they can have untroubled hearts. The reason they can have peace. The reason they can have joy in a world of pain. Jesus has overcome it all through his death and his resurrection. So does it feel like the world is winning? When it does, remember the triumph of the cross. Does it feel like sin is getting the best of you? Remember, he died for those sins on the cross. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, then look up to him. Look up to Him, the one who made an end to all of our sin. And not only that, pronounced judgment on Satan at the cross. When you feel like you can't bear up anymore under the pain, remember the triumph of the cross. When sickness and death are mocking you, remember that Jesus who died was also raised from the dead. Do you now believe? Belief in this truth is the thing that will turn your sorrow into joy. It's where our joy is grounded, and it's what gives us a joy that cannot be taken away. Let us pray.
Father, we pray that you would transmute our earthly sorrows into joy of heavenly gain. Do it through impressing upon us all that Christ accomplished at the cross. Maybe there are some here this morning who have not yet placed their trust in Jesus. I pray that through Your Spirit, they would come to believe. And for those who do believe, we pray that You would help their unbelief. That they would grasp in deeper measure than ever the great love with which You have loved us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.